Good morning. morning. Hope you're doing well this morning. I want to give you a quick update uh, on the the chambers. Uh, Most of you probably have an idea of what's going on. Uh, Fudd and Christy had uh, Evangeline this week on Tuesday. Um, They are there. She is still in the NICU. Uh, Fudd and Christy are currently at the Ronald McDonald House uh, so that they can be near to her. And uh, there are some complications and there are things they're just trying to, to pray through and see what the Lord will do to hopefully bring some, some healing. Uh, when I asked Fudd, I said, Fudd, what, what are, give me two or three things that we as a church can be praying for. This is what he asked us to pray for, um, that her breathing would regulate, that she would be able to start eating, um, and they'd be able to come home. Those are the three things. And so um, from, according to from my conversation with Fudd, those are the three things that they want, that her, her breathing would regulate, um, that she would be able to eat, and if they're able to do those things, then hopefully that means they're going to be able to come home and their family will be able to be back together. As you can imagine, it's hard for them uh, to be apart from their other kids and their other kids to be apart from them, and so there's a lot going on there. So if you guys would pray uh, in that way for them. Um, in fact, um, as we get started, I want to pray over uh, the text we're going to have this morning. Uh, and also we'll pray for the chambers in that as well. So if you join me in praying. Father, we are grateful that we have another morning, an opportunity to gather together as a church family, um, to, to worship you, to be in your presence, to, to learn from you, to be comforted by you, to be challenged by you, and uh, to, to, to worship you together. And so, Father, I pray that as we open up your word, that you would speak to us and that we would be a people who not only hear, but respond to the word that you've put before us. So, Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts to receive it in a way that is honoring and glorifying to Jesus. And, Father, we do, um, we do pray for Fudd and Christy, Evangeline, and the other kids. Uh, Lord, we pray that um, we thank you that she is here. Um, and we thank you for the for the good reports and that, that Christy made it through the delivery safely and that, that the doctors are starting to figure out some things. And, Lord, we do pray those things that, that Fudd asked us to pray. Father, we pray that your hand would be upon, upon Evangeline and that her breathing would regulate uh, quickly and um, that she will be able to eat, uh, that in doing so they might be able to, to bring her home and be together as a family. Uh, so, Lord, we, we entrust them to you and know that you are a sovereign and good God, and you can do these things. So we ask on their behalf that you will do them, um, that we might be able to gather around them and continue to celebrate uh, your hand. We love you and ask it in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Um, if, you, um, if you haven't been with us, or even if you have, we're going through the book of Ephesians right now. So if you have a copy of God's Word and you want to open up to the book of Ephesians, uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one uh, under the chair in front of you. Uh, so if you've got it digital, paper, old school, however you want to do it, the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6 is where we'll be this morning. If you're not sure where Ephesians is, just go ahead and look at the table of contents. There's no shame in that. You're good to do that. That's what it's there for. Um, so we've been going through this book of Ephesians for several weeks now. Um, and this series is called By Grace Through Faith. And that, that title comes from Ephesians 2.8, where it talks about us being saved, that is being brought into the family of God, redeemed from our sins by God's grace through our faith. But it's even more than just a verse about how we come to be saved. Because the reason why we picked this is because not only do we enter into God's family by grace through faith, but we walk out our lives as followers of Christ by grace through faith. 
Because it's not enough to say we come into God's family by his grace through our faith. That is how we continue to live it out. And when we get from Ephesians 1 through 3, really Paul's laying out who we are in Christ because of the gospel. And then in chapter 4, there's this turn to, okay, now this is who you are. And in 4 through 6, it's kind of this is how you live this out. And in fact, in chapters 4 and 5, Paul uses the word walk five different times. And the word walk refers to how we carry out our lives as followers of Christ. And ultimately, everything in that is rooted in an understanding that without Christ, we can't do it. We look at the commands. Paul lays out, you need to start walking this way. Don't walk as other people walk. Get rid of these things. Live this way. And as we look at it, and we say trying to keep all of that would be impossible. And we are reminded that it is by grace through faith we are able to continue walking forward. And so what we're doing now is we're getting to the end of chapter 5 um, and into chapter 6. And as we do this, we see that Paul focuses in on three specific relationships. So I want to read, um, I'm going to read chapters, uh, I'm going to read starting in chapter 5 in a text that Joe dealt with last week, starting in verse 22, because I want us to see all of it, make a few comments, and then we'll get in. Ephesians 5.22. We're going to start there, and we're going to read all the way through 6 and 9. Um, if you are able, I'd like to ask you, if you would, to stand as we read God's word as a sign of respect and understanding that this is not man's word but the Lord's. Ephesians chapter 5, starting verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters without, with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with good will, as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So before we go any further into the text, um, I, I want to. I think we need is good for us to address a specific issue. Um, in the section of Ephesians six five through nine, depending on what translation you have, we will see the word more than once. The word slave. Now, in our context and in our day of time, almost instantaneously, our mind goes to 
a uh, very dark period in the history of our country and of our world where people were enslaved, treated terribly, considered less than human, mainly because their skin color was different. And that is what our mind goes to. That's, it's the type of slavery that Paul refers to in 1 Timothy 1 as man-stealing, where someone was taken against their will, held with no hope, forced to do labor, and treated as subhuman. Um, in the times of the Bible, that type of slavery did exist. However, there was also another type of slavery as well. By the way, in 1 Timothy 1, when Paul talks of man-stealing, he lists it among a list of things that he calls unholy, profane, contrary to the gospel. In the times of the Bible, there was a type of slavery that was, diff- that was different. So imagine you're in a society that doesn't have banks where you can borrow money. And so there were times that people who did not have money would go to someone who did have money and say, I need money for this, and they would be indebted to them. And the way that they would carry out or pay back that debt wasn't that they had a good enough job that they could just pay the money back. They would actually indenture themselves to that person. They would actually enslave themselves to that person. And uh, so in doing so, they would do that until the debt was paid off. And sometimes they would even just continue in that Um, But it's the type of slavery that Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians 7 where people could get out of this. They could work off the debt and no longer be a slave. They could gain their freedom. Why do I say that? Well, there is a reality that when we hear this, we think of the atrocities that has gone on. And we might think in this passage, Paul is condoning the type of evil, sinful behavior that took place and that resulted not only in slavery but in continuing racial attitudes And terrible thoughts towards others. That is simply not the case of what Paul is doing here. We see from other places in scripture that that is not what Paul is condoning. So I wanted to be very clear as I go on because I don't want to make a a caveat every time I say the word. I want you to know where I'm coming from. As we're looking at this, these are people that Paul is talking to that is more in the line of a uh, employee, employer, closer to that, much closer than what we would think of as slavery as we saw in America. So that being said, the question that I've got of this text is why Paul chooses these three relationships to focus on. Because he's gone through in chapter 5, he's given us all these different instructions on how we are to live out our life as followers of Christ. And in all of these instructions, all of these things that Paul is commanding, almost every single one of them have to do with interpersonal relationships. And instead of being very pointed, they're a little more broad in things that cover all kinds of relationships. But then when we get to the end of chapter 5, and what we have is the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6, Paul focuses in on these three relationships relationships in particular. And my question I have as I'm reading this text is, why does he pull these three relationships out and not other relationships? And I think that as we kind of look at some of the commonalities in this, these relationships, the picture becomes a little more clear. One of the things that we see in these three different relationships is that in every one of them, there is a person who is in some state of authority and another person who comes under that state of authority. So we see in Ephesians 5, wives are told to submit to their husbands. Chapter 6, verse 1, children are to obey their parents. Chapter 6, verse 5, slaves are to obey their masters. Now there's a difference in wording. And so we understand that there's a not exact 
same parallel in all three of these. There's a different type of relationship. There's a different type of authority. There's a different type of, of submission or obedience, even in the way that Paul uses words. He doesn't tell wives to obey their husbands. There's a different concept here. But the general idea is that there's someone in an authority position, and then there's someone who responds to that authority being under their authority. And so we see this commonality that's there. And I think that in that commonality, we can see some of why Paul chose this. So there's three reasons why I think Paul addresses these relationships. And there's probably more. But there's three that I'd like for us to consider this morning as we move forward. The first one is this. Our hearts push back against authority. Our hearts push back against authority. Now, I know that this is a broad stroke, and some of you right now may be saying, I don't push back against authority. I listen to authority. I do, which is pushing back against authority for what it's worth. So here's, here's what I want to say. Notice in all three, that was, that was a joke. Thanks for laughing. Notice that in all three of these relationships, the first person that is addressed is the person who is under the authority. That's the first person that's addressed. So wives under the authority of the husbands, children under the authority of parents, slaves under the authority of masters. In all three of these relationships, these are the first ones that Paul addresses. And each of them are directed to rightfully respond to the authority in the relationship. Now, this is not a blind doing whatever the person in authority tells them to do. We see phrases like, as to the Lord, or in the Lord. Or as to the Lord. Paul repeats this phrase over and over again. And as he repeats this, it doesn't just give the manner in which we respond to authority. But it also gives the limits to which we respond to authority. So when we are under authority, we respond the way that we should, the manner. But it also says anything that is outside the bounds of of to the Lord, we're not to submit to that. So if someone tries to, in authority, tries to push us to do something that is sinful or illegal or immoral, we don't respond and obey or submit to that because there are limits to that. But it also shapes the way in which we respond. Within those parameters, this is the direction. And it's the direction in all three relationships. What we find is that as early as the Garden of Eden In the third chapter of the Bible, we see pushback against authority taking place. And maybe you've never thought about this. Maybe you have. But here's what happens. God creates the world. Everything is perfect. Everything is wonderful. Everything is good. He creates people, the pinnacle of his creation. He basically sets them in this world, says, it's yours. Enjoy it. It is wonderful. And he himself gives his presence to them. And there's one tree. He says, you can eat of anything you want. This one tree, don't eat of it. You eat of it, you will die. Even in that, we see God's goodness. Because they'd not seen death. They didn't know what death was. But God told them, if you eat of this, you will die. And so God warns them. And so instead of believing what God says, the enemy comes in and he tempts them. And he says, did God really say God's holding out on you. And here's the key. He says, God knows if you eat of it, you will be like God, choosing good from evil. The translation, the understanding of what that means is, no longer will God tell you what to do. No longer will God be an authority over you. No longer will be God the one who decides what's right and that you should do. You get to be that one. Throw the yoke off. Decide for yourself. Push back against authority. 
And so the fall contains in its so many multifaceted ways of rebellion against God, even at its core, this pushback against God's authority. And we see it even in our hearts today. When the word of God comes to us, if we didn't push back against authority, we would read the scriptures and then we would do exactly what it says. And maybe you do better than I do, but I've got to tell you, I read the scriptures and my life is not completely characterized by 100% obedience. Because see, even in the word of God, I will push back. We as humans want to be our own authority. And we will quite often push back against authority. And when I say that, I don't just mean open rebellion. I don't just see mean open defiance. Some of the ways in which we push back against authority is murmuring, bitterness, or as Paul says, eye service, hard-heartedness, doing things with a wrong attitude, even all of this wraps up an attitude of pushing back against authority. And what Paul is calling us to do is to respond not that way, but in a way that Christ would respond and that Christ would want us to respond. In these relationships in particular, it's even easier because the people that are, we are, who, whose authority we are under are a lot of times the people we are most familiar with And so we can see the good, the bad, and the ugly. We've seen their sinfulness, and we see how their sin and shortcomings can affect us. And we want to push back. However, according to Ephesians 4.1, we are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called. Our circumstances don't get to call the shots. We are under the authority of God who calls us to respond rightly to the authority of those over us. So our hearts tend to push back against authority. But the flip side of this coin is my second point. Our hearts tend to misuse authority. Now, again, this is a broad stroke. But if we look at what Paul does here is he addresses the person under authority first, but he doesn't just stop there. If our hearts didn't tend to misuse authority, then Paul could have just addressed people under authority and said, authority is so good and people use it rightly, you don't have to address them. No, Paul said he talks to the people under authority and then he gets very direct with those who are in authority. And so what he wants to do is he wants to call them to humility and understanding that they are to use whatever authority they have for the good of the other person. So what happens here is he's correcting the, um, the tendency of our sinful hearts. So husbands are told to love their wives in the same way that Christ loved the church. Fathers are told not to provoke their children to anger, but raise them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Masters are told to not threaten, to stop threatening, and remember that God is their master, and he shows no partiality between master and servant or master and slave. History has shown us time and time again that the sinful hearts of man will take even God's word and twist it and use it to bolster their own authority and bolster their own perceived power. So heavy-handed husbands will take Ephesians chapter 5 and use it to club their wives and say, you have to submit to me. Parents will take Ephesians 6, 1 not all of them, very few, thankfully, could take Ephesians 6.1 and they can use it to justify abusing children. Or 
men and women can take Ephesians 6, 5 through 9 and use it as a means to justify oppression of someone because they're of another race. You see, the fact of the matter is, as we're reading and understanding and digging into this, Paul is saying, our hearts may have never gone there. Our hearts may have never taken the authority position that we're in and used it to abuse someone or used it to push down someone. But have we taken our authority and with every effort that we had say, I want to be for your good. I want to bless you. I want to show you the glory of Jesus in the way that I exercise this over you. That's the call. And can I just tell you as we're looking at that and we think about it, there can be the tendency to think, man, I've gotten this wrong Maybe you're a child and you think about the way that you have just pushed back against the authority of your parents. Or maybe you're a college student and you're thinking about how you have just rebelled against your parents, maybe in not big ways, but maybe it's small ways. Maybe you think about the way you're responding to your boss. Or maybe you're thinking about the way you are a boss and you have treated people under your authority or a parent with their children or whatever. And you're sitting here and right now what you are feeling may be this just weight of, man, I've gotten this wrong. And it's like Joe said last week, the words and the commands of God push down on us, but the great thing is that the gospel of Jesus comes and it lifts us up. That is why this has to be by grace through faith. Because as we see this, we see our shortcomings, we see our failures, we see our inability to do this, we see our tendency to mess this up, and we can be left in despair. But the glory of the gospel is that by grace, through faith, Jesus works in us, and we can be this kind of people. Not by our own power, but by the power of the Holy Spirit who comes within us and crushes the sin in our life, shows us how evil this is, and then shows us how Christ has won the day and wants to create in us hearts that do this. Why do we know that's the truth? Well, I think that we get this from the third reason why I think Paul brings out these three relationships, and that is this. These relationships are pictures of the gospel. Now, I've already mentioned last week, Joe did such a magnificent job showing us how the end of Ephesians 5 points us to the gospel through marriage. And I've, I've read this so many times, in Ephesians 5, it's so clear. Paul makes it just astoundingly clear that marriage is a picture of the gospel. But I think as well that these two other relationships that we see in chapter 6 are also used as pictures of the gospel. So there's a couple of things. So what about the one with families? Well, we know the Bible talks about us being adopted into the family of God. But even in this text, I think we see reasons for that. So notice with me, if you will, Ephesians 6.1. It says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. But I don't know if you've ever found it interesting. Then when you get to verse 4... It says, fathers, do not promote your children to anger. Now, that's different. In all three relationships, whoever is addressed to, so husbands, wives submit to your husbands, and then he addresses husbands. Slaves submit, you obey your masters, then he addresses masters. Here he says, children obey your parents, but then he addresses fathers. Now, I don't think what Paul is doing here is saying that mothers aren't an authority over their children. 
I don't think it's what he's saying at all because he intentionally just didn't say, children, obey your fathers. He could have said that. He knows the word for father. He used it in verse four. But by the power of the spirit, he intentionally said, children, obey your parents. And then he says fathers. Why does he switch to fathers? Well, there's a sense in which fathers are are kind of to be leaders in their home. But I think even more so is that he wants us to see and remember that we are children of a heavenly father. And so children, as you've been told to obey your parents, your model is not friends. Your model is everybody who has submitted themselves to the authority of God. And parents and fathers, we are to remember we have a heavenly father who loves us and disciplines us and instructs us for our good and his glory. And so even in our family relationships, as we respond right to one another, parents lead their children with the right kind of authority and children respond to that authority. We can be a picture of the gospel to a lost and dying world. Well, what about slaves and and masters? Well, as we would see, if you notice in verse six, he says, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ. Now, the ESV, I'm not exactly sure why they do this, because that word is exactly the same. So in verse 5, it says slaves. In verse 6, it switches to servants. It's the exact same word. It's the same Greek word. And what Paul is doing here is he's using their position to say, hey, your position is similar. It paints a picture. He also goes down in verse 9. He talks about there is a master. There is one master overall. Even in this picture, he is saying in our relationship to God, we reflect that in our relationship of authority. So in their position, it was uh, slaves and masters. In ours, it may be boss and employee or wherever we might be as we see this, we can be a picture of the gospel in the way that we respond to using authority and responding to authority. We owe a life debt we could never have paid, and we have willingly indentured ourselves to Christ, eager to serve a good and gracious master. And we who have been redeemed follow the example of our heavenly master. So what do we do with this? How do we take this now, this, this, this message that we've, we've seen and heard from the scripture, how do we take this and, and really kind of have it in everyday life? Well, there's a couple things. One, we've got to realize we are all under authority. It could be something that's mentioned here, or it may be something else. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's in a club you're a part of. Maybe it's a church in your home under the authority of the government. Maybe it's your homeowners association. Nobody wants to hear that. Or maybe it's your mortgage holder. Whatever the case. You know, it's interesting. The Bible says that the borrower is a slave to the lender. And so if you've got a mortgage, congratulations. Indentured servitude to the bank. But we've got this. The thing is, we are all under authority in some shape, form, or fashion. Wherever you are, there is an authority that is over you. An earthly authority and always ultimately a heavenly authority. So there's no way that we can read this and not say that which speaks to those under authority doesn't apply to me because I'm the boss. I'm in charge. In some shape, form, or fashion, in more ways than you've probably thought about, you are under authority. So how will you respond in such a way to demonstrate that you have been redeemed by Jesus? 
That's my second point. Our response to authority should be shaped by the gospel. This is not a call to do whatever someone in authority tells you to do. Remember, example, children, obey your parents in the Lord. When you've been placed un, when you when you have either been placed under authority or placed yourself under authority, do you respond in a way that is pleasing to God, even in the small things? Do you murmur and complain behind the back of the person in authority, or do you just work when they're watching? This is especially hard in a society where the ultimate prize and the ultimate goal is autonomy of self. What is most celebrated is your own personal autonomy. So that means that we as followers of Christ, when we understand that when we are under authority, we respond the right way, we will be countercultural. Because our culture highlights above anything else personal autonomy, the lack of authority. This also encompasses our use of authority. Most of us will find ourselves in some type of position of authority in our lives. Now, even the use of the word authority just kind of feels almost heavy-handed. But what we've got to understand is that God, in his goodness and his sovereign wisdom and his providence, has given authority for the good of others and the glory of God. Don't you remember in, in Ephesians 6, 2, it says there was blessings. There was a promise that came with this authority. The intention of the authority of parents uh, over their children was that they would bless them and prolong their life. God's intention in this is good. So do you see your position of power as a position of service? Is it in your job, in your home, in your church? The ultimate goal of our lives is to display the glory of God. We have the hope of the Spirit of God to put down in our flesh the fight against authority and the fight to misuse of our authority. But as I've said before, and I close with this, it is only possible by grace through faith. And God loves to supply grace through faith. So this morning as you're sitting here and you're thinking, man, I've messed up in this. Or man, I know somebody who's messed up in this and I don't like to submit to them or I don't like to do what's right. As the word of God comes to us, know that we have what we need. Here's how I know we know what we need. Jesus, eternally God, always existed, second person of the Trinity. When he came to earth and was in the garden, he prayed, knowing that he was about to be crushed by the wrath of God against any sin and every sin that had ever been committed, about to be poured out upon him, Christ, with sweat drops of blood, prayed, if there's any way possible that this cup would be taken away, take it away, but not my will, but yours be done. And Jesus, who is no way inferior to the Father, No way less God than the Father submitted himself under the authority of the Father, bore the weight of our sin, the weight that we deserve, the wrath that should have been poured out on us, and he conquered that sin and rose in victory. And as he stood and was about to go back in heaven and told his disciples, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me.
Christ is the example of one who undergoes and submits himself to authority and yet willingly and joyfully and in such kindness uses that authority for our good. If that is our Christ, then we can endure and we can be an example of the gospel in the way that we respond to authority and the way that we use authority for the glory of his name. And maybe this morning, maybe this morning, even as we're talking about all of this, the Spirit, by his kindness and conviction, has shown you that you've never placed your faith in Christ. What I would ask this morning is that if you've never trusted Christ, that this morning you would feel not only the weight of conviction from the Spirit, but the freeing wonder of knowing you too can have your sins forgiven because Christ has paid the price for you. I want to pray for us. We're about to move into a time of the Lord's Supper where we remember the death of Christ on our behalf and celebrate that he is ours and he has redeemed us forever. And we eagerly await his return for us. So I want to pray for us. ask that you take this time to prepare your hearts that this would be a response. If the Lord has shown you something that you need to confess or repent, this would be the time. This would be a time of rejoicing and remembering that though we fail, he is strong and is for us. So as the band comes, I'm going to pray for us. Um, we will, there's stations at the front and uh, one at the back, I believe. There's wine and juice. Ask that you come when you're ready. Take the elements, return to your seat, and I will uh, lead us together to take the elements. Let's pray.